Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Uh, it, it occurs to me that I have been writing about and talking about Russell Moore for literally years. In fact, uh, one of the chapters of my book, How the Right Lost His Mind, is really based on Russell Moore's critique of what was going on in evangelical Christianity. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about uh, the Never Trump movement or people who are Trump skeptics. Uh, Russell Moore is a very, very prominent evangelical Christian who was one of the most consistent and eloquent voices warning his fellow Christians against embracing Trump, drinking the Kool-Aid, and he has continued to be a courageous uh, and outspoken uh, critic of w- much of what has happened on the Christian right. Uh, he is the past president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist, and he recently left that. Uh, he is a theologian, ethicist, and in June became the director of public theology, the Public Theology Project of Christianity Today. So after all of these years of writing and thinking and talking about Russell Moore, today is the first day that we actually get to talk to one another. So, Dr. Moore, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Charlie. I, I listen to this uh, program all the time, so uh, it's, it's a joy to be on it with you. Well, I appreciate it. So, there are a lot of things I want to talk about with you, but let's let's start with the most immediate concerns, because uh, you and I had a, had a brief exchange last week on the issue of, of refugees and Christians, which seem to me to be sort of capturing the dilemma, what's happening to Christianity. And you wrote a very powerful piece, What Anti-Refugee Rhetoric Does to the Soul. So could you talk to me about this? Because I, I find it so hard to understand how Christians, uh, you know, very you know, active Christian people who describe themselves as Christians, have really embraced this notion that we don't have an obligation to the stranger, to the poor, to the people in prison. So can you tell me what's happening here? Well, it's as, as many people have said, the secularization of evangelical Christianity in, in many ways. But when, when I wrote that piece, it was largely anticipatory uh, because I haven't seen a big wave of anti-Afghan uh, refugee rhetoric mm-hmm. coming out of churches. But I know we have had that before. Uh, with uh, Syrian refugees, uh, for instance. I, I remember several years ago, a pastor calling me and saying, I, I, I'm trying to uh, lead my people to take up an offering to help Syrian refugees in the Middle East. And he had a backlash from some of his uh, senior adults saying, if we do that, then they're going to move near us and they're going to be you know, around us and they're going to, to kill us and Sharia law and all of these sorts of conspiracy theories. And he was saying, I don't know what to do. And I just said, well, (laughs) when you find yourself asking the question, who is my neighbor? We actually have precedent for that in the Bible. And so uh, this really is ground worth fighting for. And so it seems to me it won't be long before we start seeing people, uh, especially when refugees start, uh, start coming into the country, with people trying to, to scapegoat them. And my concern is not just for the refugees, although I'm concerned for them. My concern is for the people using that kind of rhetoric, because I, I see what it does to them, not just to the vulnerable, but to them. Well, let me re- read you something you wrote. You said, this sort of anti-refugee rhetoric doesn't only harm refugees. It also hurts the people seeking to use it and the people used by it. There's a danger here, not just to human life and to national security and to American honor, 
but also to the consciences and souls of the people who are scared and angry. So what does it do? Because this is, this is I think, one of the challenges that, that, that we, we all face is like, who do we become if we decide to embrace these kinds of fears and attitudes? You know, there was a, a comedian named Jerry Clower, Southern comedian from my home state of Mississippi, who uh, wrote one time about why he changed his mind on segregation in the 60s. And it's because he was passing uh, some segregationist politician who was up uh, screaming about uh, about African-American people and so forth. And he said, as I watched him, I was able to see that sort of hate and anger and to realize that's not who I want to be. And it caused him to, to reconsider all the things that he had been taught. And I think something really similar is at work when it comes to the, the, the scapegoating of refugees or immigrant communities and, and others within community. It does something to your soul. I mean, you start to become the sort of person who is driven by anger at someone else's expense. That doesn't mean it answers all the questions. Uh, we can't receive every refugee into the country, and we have some mm-hmm. some conversations we have to have about that. But that reflexive uh, scapegoating of refugees as though they are themselves dangerous is, I think, a problem for people. And it also, I think, leads to cynicism. Because if you look at all of these different groups that have been treated this way uh, over the years and, and all of the things that we're told we have to fear because of imminent uh, existential threat from them. And then the people who are saying that just move on to the next threat. I mean, ultimately, people start to realize, well, you, you don't know what you're talking about or, or you're just trying to manipulate and use me. So you, you, you mentioned that this was part of the process of the secularization of the church. Talk to me a little bit about that as, as, as well, because I will, I will admit that back in 2015 and 2016, the one aspect of American politics that completely baffled me was the, the switch of evangelical Christians who had been the group that had cared the most about character to the group that cared least about the character of people in public life. And increasingly, you're you're seeing the well the, the the even the white evangelical church embracing not just trump but but you know republican talking points almost you know I, re- reflexively so how and and this comes at a period where they claim that they are defending the spiritualization of of american society or that they are fighting for religious liberty but you're saying that they have become in fact more secular can you talk to me about that? Yeah, I think I think that evangelical Christianity is much more complicated than many people think. And, and even, I would say, Trump-supporting evangelical Christianity is often more complicated than people think. And I'm, I'm as you know, someone who never mm-hmm. went down that road. But uh, there are people, I think, who at least at first really did have genuine concerns uh, about character and about – and thought, we're just – we're just going to have to do the the least bad thing in their minds. Mm -hmm. And so I get that. I I understand that even if I disagree with it, but I think there's something else going on, of course, that's, that's much bigger than that. And part of that has to do with, I think that I misread the way that cultural Christianity would mutate. Hmm. Uh, and, And by cultural Christianity is something I've been warning about for 25 years, which is this sense of Christianity as a means to an end. 
a means to a cultural end or a political end or uh, a way to differentiate between us and them that really isn't rooted in the transcendent. And it, it was something that really threw me into a spiritual crisis as a 15-year-old in the Bible Belt because I was I was looking at, uh, in some cases, really virulent racism. I was looking at uh, all sorts of scandals going on that were being covered over. And then I was looking at these voter guides that would come out uh, at the time in the 80s and 90s that would have the candidates listed in terms of their their views on the Christian issues. And sometimes I would see these and say, what what is the Christian view of the line item veto or the balanced budget <laughs> amendment? And it just seemed to me a very cynical use of uh, Christianity. And I think that that's, that's part of what we are seeing in some places. And I assumed because... Uh, it's no longer, uh, people don't have to be uh, Christians increasingly in the United States of America in order to get the things that they want. I assumed that that would lead, as it has in the past, to a kind of winnowing and purifying of evangelical Christianity. What I think I misread is that cultural Christianity went from people who might not really have strong beliefs but have to go to church to people who don't even go to church, but who have Bible verses on the wall and who see themselves as Christian uh, in kind of the way that we see in Europe, uh, whereas uh, Tobias Kramer, the, uh, the sociologist who's been working on all of these populist uh, movements in Europe will say, there's a claiming of Christian symbols and what those Christian symbols mean, even for atheists, is we're not Muslims, we're not uh, fill in the blank. We're the people who are standing here for our civilization or blood and soil, and Christianity becomes a, a kind of placeholder for that. So I think that's one of the streams that we have uh, that we have uh, to deal with and to contend with in the United States right now. And my concern for that is not uh, primarily political. Uh, my my concern for that is primarily in terms of the witness of the church. And I think one of the things that, that you're seeing is a kind of disillusionment on the part of many people who are in the place that I was in as a 15-year-old, except more so. They're, they're looking at all of this and are saying, well, is this all that Christianity really is? Is it just a, a political movement? So I, I, I talk to campus ministries uh, that will have to take evangelical out of their name because they can't have conversations with students who come on the campus because those, conver- those, those students assume evangelical means a uh, political, uh, so, some sort of political tribe. And so we have to just, they say, get rid of the word because it doesn't mean anything anymore. I so, think that's really, really troubling. Well, there are a lot of troubling things here. So the, your definition of, of cultural Christianity sort of parallels with what, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing where it's more important to be able to say Merry Christmas than to actually follow through with some of the teachings of the gospel. And I don't know that you've ever used the term Christianist or Christianism, but I, I in my newsletter last week, I, I said there's a distinction between Christianity, which is the belief in the gospels, and Christianism, which appears to be some sort of ethnic nationalist identity. Is there a distinction in your mind? Is that what you're talking about with uh, with cultural Christianity? 
Yeah, I'm a little allergic to the Christianist uh, language <laughs> just because of the way that it was it, it has been used over the years. So there was a okay. you know, there, there's a reason "Boy Who Cried Wolf" is a cliche. It's mm-hmm. because it's often true. True. And so you you would have uh, people using language of Christianist, really referring to anybody who has right. some sort of religious grounding. And there were all of these warnings in the George W. Bush years of a theocracy and a theocratic takeover. And anybody who was familiar with the situation would know that this is not what's happening. Uh, but I would say that there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of Christianity that wants to, wants to use that symbolism that that I believe is is real and true, but to use it as a kind of uh, identity badge. So, for instance, I mean, the the January sixth was horrifying and traumatic to all of us for many reasons. One of the reasons for me was seeing signs uh, saying Jesus saves or John three sixteen and, and those sorts of things, because once you use language that I think refers to the ultimate reality, the most important thing in the universe for those sorts of uh, awful ends, something really, really wrong has taken place. And so I would go on right after the insurrection on Christian radio and uh, denounce it. And, And I remember there was a caller who called in and said, well, but how can you know if what you're participating in, in something like that is going to end up being bad? And I just said, well, hey, no matter where you are, if they're building a gallows, it's not good. That's a bad sign. That's a bad sign. Yeah, that would that would that would be a tell. So you you managed to survive uh, in your position throughout the entire basically the entire Trump presidency. Uh, but uh, I, I, I see here that you were deemed to be a, quote, source of significant distraction in a task force report earlier this year to the uh, Southern Baptist uh, Convention's executive committee, critics accused you of being a liberal, and megachurch pastors began to withhold money from the denomination's missions program in protest. This must be one of the more difficult things because everything I know about you is that you're not a liberal Democrat. You have <laughs> been you you were a very solid social conservative really right up until the the Trump moment is that is that fair and yet and yet and yet somehow because you didn't go along with all this you became the distraction yeah and I never changed on anything uh, m- my concerns about uh, all of these things actually uh, these concerns were coming out of my social conservatism not a not a changing of it and so w- when I would look around and see see people who uh, were altering their their viewpoints, in ways that were sometimes really cynical and disturbing to me. Uh, so I, I have actually a lot of respect, uh, disagreement, but respect for someone like a Robert Jeffress, who really does believe this stuff mm. and consistently uh, has said so and will say so behind closed doors and will say so in public. I have a lot more respect than I would have for people who would, uh, who would say, if anything, uh, harsher things about the candidate and the movement and so forth behind closed doors, but then would go out in public and uh, issue praise. That seemed to me to be a, a step I couldn't I couldn't take. 
Yeah. So this was is, was one of the questions: is is how much of this was uh, a matter of real belief, and how much of it was uh, a sort of a cynical desire to be close to power? And there were clearly some folks that decided that this was the route to 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 power. Um, I don't know wh- which category would you put, uh, say, a, uh, um, a Jerry Falwell Jr. in. Well, I, I mean, if, if we look at uh, if we look at the situation with uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, I mean, that is itself a picture of what I mean by the secularization of um, of uh, evangelical Christianity, because this is someone who would attack on social media and other places. Uh, e- even words that had been spoken by Jesus himself. So uh, I remember at one point uh, he said, "We don't want some turn your other cheek, turn the other cheek sort of response to the problems wait, that we're having here." Wait, yes. <laughs> <laughs> just say, "Well, this is this is this is crazy." I mean, th- these are words that are coming directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ. So I don't think everybody was making a calculation of being close to to power. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't think most people were. I think most people thought at the beginning, well, if we just come along, then we're going to be able to steer this in a in a better direction, and we can have we can speak into the situation, and we can keep the worst things from happening. And, and that's what I would I would hear often. I I just never believed that would work. Um. But I think that's what many people sort of said to themselves. You know, going back to your um, your, your being allergic to to Christianness, it was it was interesting. Like I got a lot of blowback last week, and I, I do take your point uh, from uh, various you know secular organization and professional atheists who are saying there's really no distinction. All Christians are behind this, and this goes to your other point though about the damage done to. The, the image of evangelical Christianity, I guess I would even push it even further to Christianity itself, that, uh, you know, and I've been hearing a lot over the last few years, like, how, how can I be associated with a religion whose members behave in this particular way? So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that this is, I mean, this is something, I'm not guessing, this is something that you have written about and spoken about very, very extensively. This secularization has done real damage to the actual authentic witness of the gospel. And this refugee issue just sort of highlights it because if there's anything that the Bible is very clear about, it is the obligation to the stranger, the migrant, all of that. And so the the, the, the contrast really is discrediting to the genuine witness of the church. And I guess I'm, I'm you know, puzzled by why more leaders of the church don't understand the damage that's being done. Well, I, I think I think some do. I, I think many do. And I'm not worried so much about what the professional atheists uh, would say. They, they're going to say that no matter what, really. Right. I'm more concerned about our own young people. Uh, so I'm having to deal every day with younger evangelicals who love Jesus. They believe the Bible. They, they want to follow Christ, but are deeply, deeply disillusioned. Uh, not just by the big national sorts of, of things, but sometimes by uh, the things that they have happening in their in their own congregations. That's of great concern to me. We cannot drive those people away with something that's other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think I, I think, and often I will. I, I had words to describe this 
only very recently in reading this uh, Chris Bale book, uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism, where uh, he argues most people uh, really aren't toxic social media trolls. Uh, it seems that way because the, the healthier the person is, uh, the less that person is going to want to be involved in those sorts of conversations and the person just withdraws. I, I see the same dynamic going on in evangelical Christianity. Most evangelical Christians are not given over to conspiracy theories and, and fear-mongering. And, and many people within churches, but when the migrant crisis happened uh, at the border, the main thing I was having to do is to talk evangelical churches from going there to minister to them. And they wanted, let's bring clothes, let's bring food. And I would say, wait, 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 you can't, you can't. The government won't let you. But I think the problem is that sometimes there can be a small group of people whose goal is to demoralize and they will do anything. And then the healthier uh, people just don't understand the psychology. So they think if, if we just sort of bear with these people and we don't address it, I'm sure they're embarrassed by the way they're acting, then we can, <laughs> then it will go away and it doesn't go away. And so you end up with what may be a small group of people who nonetheless have taken, taken control of the temperature of a congregation or neighborhood or community. And then that becomes, uh, ultimately becomes the reality because the healthier people walk away or give up or disengage. And I think we're seeing that in multiple areas in American life right now. And that's what concerns me. And that's why uh, I used to have a uh, generational change paradigm that I said, uh, this will fix this. If we just live through the next few years, they're not making 25-year-old Jerry Falwell Juniors. And that's true. Uh, they're not. But the, the problem is that the healthier people are the ones who aren't obsessed with uh, political uh, issues or, or cultural issues. They really do want to focus on the gospel and the mission and their lives. And so they start to step back and they start to disengage. And then before you know it, the picture that then goes out of evangelical Christianity is something very different from that of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and even uh, Billy Graham. So speaking of people who've stepped away, a very, very popular Bible teacher, Beth Moore, who is no relation to you, uh, also, you know, stepped away from um, the, the the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, and uh, back in May, when you, when you left, uh, she said in a direct message to the Washington Post uh, that you um, first won her respect when you became an outspoken uh, critic of Trump. She wrote, uh, "It was 2016, and the evangelical world was turning upside down, and he had the guts or the gall, depending on how you saw it, to, to call out Trump." Um, and then the, the post goes on. Beth Moore, who received her own backlash for speaking against Trump, said they were both, quote, reeling from what appeared to us a profoundly compromised witness playing out on a global stage. The backlash Russell received for speaking out was swift, severe and unrelenting. So do you, do you still feel that you were I mean, what, what is your standing in this, so you, you, I mean, obviously, we we know the kind of backlash that you got, and you have a new position. So, where are you now, in 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 in, ter in, in terms of the overall evangelical? Do they still think of you as a as somebody who is a, a pariah, somebody who is out of step? 
No, I think I think that was a very small group of people. Uh, again, as I just said, uh, I I would receive uh, massive affirmation uh, from Southern Baptists. Go to the Southern Baptist Convention, and there would be someone who would make a motion to defund. Uh, the ERLC that I led. Uh, I remember one year someone stood up with a MAGA hat on and, and made the motion to defund us. And then yeah. there would be a vote and we would win the vote with literally 99% of the vote. So the, the people were were very encouraging and affirming, even if they didn't agree with me on Trump or maybe on immigration or, or some other issue, but they were, they were very encouraging and affirming. That wasn't the problem. The problem was what happened between meetings. And I was having to expend so much time and energy on that in a way that I finally concluded I can carry out my, my calling really better in ways that aren't going to uh, involve having to deal with this sort of subterranean uh, stuff. And, and so that's, that's uh, what it really was about. I, I'm a real deal evangelical Christian who really believes this stuff. Uh, I believe Jesus is alive. I believe that uh, that there can there can be a second birth. Uh, I, I believe all of those things, and so I had to find a way where I could do that joyfully, and uh, and clearly. And I think the same thing was true with Beth. We, she and I are having uh, an event uh, together in Nashville in hmm. September uh, called uh, Lessons in Leaving and Staying. Because both of us think the primary um, aspect of our lives is not the leaving from various uh, places. It's the fact that we're staying. Uh, we really are committed uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to uh, the calling that he's put on our lives. And we really do think that there can be a renewed evangelical witness in the United States. And I, I see that every day with people who are, some of it is uh, some despair, uh, where, for instance, I will have a lot of younger uh, people or even up to middle-aged people who will contact me and say, help us know what to do with our parents. Our parents yeah. have gotten involved in some conspiracy theories or a vaccine refusal or, or something like that and help us to know how to deal with that. And I remember thinking at one point, this is so completely opposite of what I was dealing with 10 years ago when it would have been parents saying, help us know what to do with our kids. They're, they're going off to college or somewhere and, they're, and they're, they're walking away from the faith or they're embracing some bad uh, ideologies. Now it's the reverse. There is some despair out there, but there also is, I think, a kind of exhaustion. Uh, COVID has been very difficult on churches for, for multiple reasons. And one of those reasons being the fact that pastors are, pastors are dealing with uh, much of what one would see some politicians having to deal with back home in maybe their state party apparatus or, or what have you, because no matter what they do, they're going to have people in sometimes in their congregations, sometimes in their communities who are going to come after them. And even the ones who say, I'm going to avoid all of this really controversial stuff. I'm just not going to mm -hmm. talk about it. That doesn't work. Because then it, then it becomes your silence on the steel is deafening or your, your, your silence on the pandemic is a problem. And even when that's a very, very small group of people in a community or in a congregation, it's exhausting to have to deal with the kind of psychological warfare that comes with that. I think that can only go so long before people have to say, we really do, we really do have to do something else.
And I think we're kind of at that moment right now in evangelical Christianity. That's why I'm, I'm actually hopeful uh, about the future. Uh, I just think it's, it's going to take us a while to get there. You know, one of the issues that I, that I think progressives sometimes uh, underestimate um, is is the question of religious freedom, religious liberty, and how important that is to respect uh, other people's choices. But but you made the point several years ago that Christians need to understand that the point of religious freedom and religious liberty that it is the it is a means, not the end. It is a means to the actual worship of God. Mm-hmm. And what strikes me is sometimes how small uh, some of the um, uh, some of the televangelist image of God seems to be. You may have seen this. I'm sure you did. Uh, Jim Baker, who believe it or not, is still a, a yeah. on on television said, this is a direct quote, how can you go to church and pray when you're wearing a mask? Do you think God can hear your prayers through a mask? <laughs> how do you even start with that? Yeah. What kind, mean, of a, what kind of a God would not be able to hear your prayers? You, you, you go to Walgreens and the, the, the clerk can hear you talking through the mask. I'm guessing God can too. Yeah, I mean, it's a denial of the omniscience of God, but anybody who's been paying attention to Jim Baker over the last 30 years is not really surprised to hear heresy uh, coming from, from Jim Baker. Uh, and I think, I think that that's part of the problem, is that uh, there's, there's often a, a lot of heresy trials going on within evangelical Christianity, but they're not about actual heresy. Uh, they're about whether someone supports a particular candidate or whether somebody seems angry enough uh, about something that's, uh, that's going on, rather than uh, prosperity gospel and, uh, and this sort of thing that you're mentioning. And you could go through a thousand other examples. He was also selling, uh, selling oil that could, could, uh, could wipe away COVID and then later selling a blanket that you could put over <laughs> you to heal you. I mean, that sort of thing has nothing to do with historic apostolic Christianity, it's it's a marketing endeavor, in my view, and that's part of what concerns me. Not that it goes on, but that when people see that, then they conclude, well, that's what Christianity really is. It's a it's a marketing game, and it's not, uh, or even it's a political. Uh, it's a means to mobilizing people politically. Well. If that's what Christianity is, there are other ways to mobilize people uh, politically, uh, which is exactly what you're, you're seeing with younger people who are drawn even to this sort of populist uh, kind of mentality. The people they're listening to are often agnostics or atheists or, or Jungians or, or others. They don't need it for that. They can move on to something else. So if that's what Christianity is, is a means to an end, then it really isn't worth it. If what Christianity is, though, is take up your cross and follow me, then it is worth it. And it's, it's worth enduring some uh, so-called heresy trials, even for people who are themselves heretics sometimes, to get there. So you have challenged the church on, on race issues, on, on de- dealing with it, with the legacy of racism. You've dealt with it on character, embracing a, a huckster like, uh, like Donald Trump. I believe huckster was your term. Uh, you've, you've challenged them on their position on, on immigrants, uh, but also on some the gender issues. Uh, I have to ask you about this because this got a lot of attention. Um, the fight within the 
within the church about uh, sexual abuse allegations yeah. and your concern that they just were not taking some of the uh, basic things. And again, this is a real challenge, not just for Baptists, obviously, but for the yeah. Catholic Church and, and, and for others. How do you deal with, with, with sex abuse? And, and well, just tell me a little bit about that story, because this strikes me as another really serious challenge to the witness of the church, that, that if people say, you're not taking this this victimization of women seriously. If you're allowing this kind of misconduct, then then what is your moral standing? And this was something that that you got wrapped up in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you do, you actually don't have any moral standing. Uh, you just have a theater. Uh, you can then uh, you can then lambaste people on the outside for whatever their their flaws are, while. Uh, covering up or ignoring things that are going on within the church that are actually even worse than that because because they're they're taking not only the harm to people that we can see outside the church but also putting uh, attempting to put the face of Jesus on it to say this is uh, th- this is coming from uh, Jesus himself. So when we see, for instance, the, there's a, a really pr- prominent and respected. Um, Apologist, evangelist, uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, in evangelical life. He was all over the place, everywhere. Um, And then we find out later after his death uh, what was taking place, including uh, women who were coming forward talking about being uh, abused and and raped by him. The thing that's really chilling to me is about uh, some of them would testify to the way that he would use religious language in order to groom them and then in order to keep them quiet. And and we can see that in multiple contexts, kind of a weaponizing of, well, you need to forgive people. You need to, uh, you need to maintain uh, the, the reputation of the church by not having this. Now, by not talking about this, I think that's deadly, deadly to real people and to real people's lives and also uh, deadly to uh, what we communicate about who Jesus is. So I was always having uh, kind of a best of times, worst of times mentality to this because on the one hand, I could see in local congregations much more concern uh, about these things. And so, you know, 10 years ago when I would raise this issue, a lot of people would say, well, that just happens among Catholics or that just happens with the kind of Jeffrey Epstein crowd or uh, or it doesn't happen in my congregation because we all know each other. So we're invulnerable to it. And that was that, of course, creates the cover of darkness where all kinds of bad things can happen. And I, I'm encouraged by the fact that 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 was much less the case. So people were coming forward and saying, what do we do? How do we prevent these things from happening? How do we minister to people in our congregations who've been through them? At the same time that you have some levers of power uh, often being used to marginalize or to silence uh, some of the survivors who have been through these things and to to turn and you can you can see this sometimes in a local congregation you can see it in a, a secular newsroom and you can see it at a, at a national level where the problem becomes the people who are pointing out the problem not the problem itself and so the 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 rhetoric then becomes well you're creating disunity you're distracting us from what our, our task is and so forth. And that's a way to say, just be quiet. Uh, I think that is that sort of mentality is going to lead to many, many more people uh, harmed. And I'll tell you, one of the most 
chilling moments for me was when we had several revelations that were coming forward within evangelical Christianity of really disturbing things. I was with a group of women evangelical leaders of all ages and all sorts of denominational backgrounds. And one of them said, we sense that some of you are really rattled by some of the things that have been unveiled and you're really shocked. And we just want you to know none of us are shocked. And I looked around the room and every woman in that room, regardless of her theology, regardless of her age, was nodding her head. Hmm. And that's when I said, okay, this is, um, the, the, the problems here are not just the problem. The problem is also the problem that kept many of us from seeing the depth of the problem. And that means, that means some reworking and, and restepping. So 20 years from now, or 30 years from now, or 40 years from now, when we look back on this particular era, what, what, what will the church think? Are we going through, are you going through a period of a mini reformation? Is this a, 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 you know, a, a mini um, reawakening? What's going on? How, how would you describe, how do you think this period of turmoil will be remembered in the church? Well, I think that's that's going to take a couple of years uh, to know, yeah. because it's it's going to it's going to depend on how people respond to it. If the way people respond to it is by uh, disengaging or walking away or getting cynical and thinking this is just the way that it always has to be, then the outcome is going to be really dark. I don't think the outcome is dark for the church. Because I, I, I believe Jesus when he says, I'll, I'll build my church and the gates of hell can't overcome it. That has nothing to, to say to any particular church. Uh, that there's no reason why American evangelical Christianity uh, has to uh, thrive, that the church will thrive around the world. And so I think we need to take the, the warning there and to say, uh, what is this going to look like? Now, again, it's encouraging to me when I see what's happening with younger people and on campuses, there's, there's really a commitment and a refusal to use uh, Jesus as a means to an end. So for instance, I'll sometimes have politicians who are wanting to run for president in the future mm -hmm. uh, who will call and say, can you, can you identify for me the really growing uh, churches that are engaging younger people because they're wanting to run in you know four to eight years and they're wanting to, to have a, a base there that I can speak to in say Iowa or South Carolina or somewhere like that. And I'll always say, yes, I can tell you those places, but these are not places that are going to uh, endorse you hmm. or allow you to stand up and give your testimony right before caucus time or primary time or give you access to their church directories. They're never going to do that. And it's not because they're to the left of you. It's because theologically, they're actually to the right of you. They, they really do believe in the transcendence of the message that they've embraced and never want to see it being used as a means to an end in any way. So I think that's encouraging. It, it's just going to be a very turbulent uh, few years getting there. And right now, the entire country, uh, the entire world in some ways is going through a nervous breakdown. Feels like and that. Uh, and that, that certainly is true in church life as well. And people are wondering, you know, what do we do? How do we get beyond mask wars and vaccine wars and Trump wars and, and so forth? And I think sometimes people kept looking at the calendar. Mm -hmm. And so people would often say, well, if we just get through 
election day. <laughs> this will be, then it'll be, then if we just right. get through the electoral college, if we just get through the vaccine rollout, if we just get through and it just keeps pushing back and the issues keep changing, but it's just as exhausting. We have to get through that without bitterness, without cynicism and without uh, taking on a, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. It's funny you should say that because I was actually thinking about that, that uh, that we probably have different timelines, um, that you know, a lot of us get caught up in the two-year cycle or the four-year cycle and, you know, move that. Whereas you have a much longer timeline that you're thinking about, a much more transcendent timeline, because it is hard to uh, to get uh, to, to break away from from that narrow, from those, those narrow cycles. So you are now the director of public theology uh, project. Project for Christianity Today. So what what is that? What is the Public Theology Project? Well, what we're attempting to do is to uh, cultivate renewal in evangelical Christianity. Uh, Christianity Today, of course, was founded by Billy Graham and Carl F. H. Henry, uh, trying to build a multi-generational, uh, multi-denominational, multi-ethnic uh, evangelical Christian witness and that's what we're uh, attempting to do, to take people who are sort of finding each other uh, right now in these moments and realizing that we have more in common than we thought we had and uh, working together to produce content, to build coalitions, to say, you know, evangelical Christianity really is about good news. There, there really is something hopeful here beyond just uh, the cynical use of it. And uh, that means paying a lot of attention to the next generation. That's what really uh, concerns me, is making sure that we're cultivating the next generation not to get uh, burned over by all the things that they've seen and to get cynical, but to say, no, there actually is a, a different way. Russell Moore, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's, uh, it's, it's taken too long to get you on, but it's been a real pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, well, thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again.